Hi there, welcome to Vertical Voice. I'm your host, Robert Taylor. Today, I'm sitting with someone who knows possibly more than anyone else about the snow patches of Scotland. I'm here with uh, Ian Cameron. Hi, uh, thanks for coming on the show, Ian. My pleasure. So how did you get into what must be probably one of the most niche things to be interested in, in the hills in Scotland? It certainly is niche. It's one of the kinder words I've heard. Totally, yeah. Uh, more obscure even than the other stuff I normally have on this show. It is pretty obscure. Uh, it started out for me uh, back, way back in the dim and distant past, 1983, when I was uh, nine years old. Um, I lived in a house. My parents had moved there recently, in fact, uh, just a month or so before that. And it had beautiful views. The house had beautiful views across to Ben Lomond, overlooking Loch Lomond. And it was quite a bad winter that year, actually, quite a lot of snow around. But then, of course, it melted, you know. So later on in the spring, when it started to melt, uh, everything started to disappear. And, and then eventually, and finally, there was this one big blob of snow which remained on the south face and slope of Ben Lomond when, when all the other hills were completely denuded of it. Mm-hmm. So I thought to myself, that's odd. You know, I remember thinking as a nine-year-old, you know, that's an odd thing to to see. And I asked my parents, you know, why was that still there? Why had it not melted? They had no idea. Of course, they were un- uninterested then and remain uninterested now, if I'm honest. But uh, it sparked a, an interest in me. And then every year I would look at the same patch of snow for the next, you know, X amount of years and I used to note down when it melted and I discovered that it was melting in roughly the same time each year. You might get a bit of variation from one year to yeah. the next, but essentially it was going in uh, in spring. Did uh, you notice at the time any correlation between, did it tend to be the amount of snow that was the main affecting factor on that or was it the heat of the summer? Did uh, I didn't look at it to did, did you not get into that, that much of a not, not back then, no. I, I did notice that when it was very snowy, the, the during the winter, that is where a lot of snow fell. The snow tended to last longer, but I thought that was just because more snow had fallen. I now realise that it's far more complicated than that. But at the time, no, not really. So when did you start going up and having a look at the, the snow patches high up in the hills in the Cairngorms and Lochaber kind of areas? That was quite a bit later. And the reason why was my mum or dad didn't drive, so I had no access, readily mm-hmm. access to, to vehicles. So that curtailed... Uh, my activities until such times as I learned to to, to drive myself uh, and that's actually when I was 17 and although I had remained interested in snow from the age of nine through to the you know my late teenage years as I become an adult when I was 18 uh, I didn't seek snow out in, in the way that I do nowadays that is to say that I was very interested and seeing it, and when I used to drive, I used to marvel at the, the amount of snow that was on the hills. But um, really, doing it properly uh, and scientifically didn't come till till actually probably I was in my early thirties, where I um, discovered that there were others who, who were doing it. So there were people actually doing it scientifically. How did you end up meeting these people? Was it hanging around at the snow patches, <laughs> or? Uh... Well, I had read something in a book that uh, Adam Watson, Dr. Adam Watson, um, had written. He Which book was that? Oh, it was... Uh, now you've got me. I don't know the name of the book. Um, it was actually... It was... His, his paper was part of another journal, and right. I had come across the journal. So I say book, yeah. I mean journal. So there was a paper in there. I see, yeah. And he, he, what he'd written about was... Uh, he had said that patches of snow had never been known to persist from one year to the next at Glencoe. 
So I thought, hmm, I'm not sure that's right. And the reason why I, I, I'm pretty sure that's not right is because I worked for the National Trust in 1993, which was a very snowy year. And I was, and I had good diary um, entries from October that year showing that snow was still persisting in some of the higher hills. So I wrote to him and said, you might be interested in this information because his email address was at the bottom. And sure enough, he wrote back, you know, the next day and he was very, very interested to find out what I had written. He said, and he asked if I had any more observations, which of course I did have. So we started to correspond with each other. And as we corresponded, it became obvious that uh, we shared this this real passion for it. And, and actually our childhood stories about being fascinated by snow were actually very closely aligned. That's so, brilliant. Could you tell us just a little bit about uh, then, obviously you met Adam Watson through that. Tell us just a little bit about uh, the man himself. He passed away, was that this year? It was, yes. Uh, he was born in 1930, so he was, he was just shy of his 89th birthday when he passed away, passed away at the start of, the, of 2019. He, uh, he was a real one-off character. He, in all probability, knew the Cairngorms better than anyone alive, certainly, uh, and, and, and in probability anyone who has, who has ever been. He, he spent so much of his childhood on them and his formative years, and he worked uh, as a as a ghillie. Um, he did a lot of skiing there. He, in fact, he went skiing there when he was young with Tom Weir, you know, the oh, wow. celebrated outdoors uh, man, uh, well known and loved to us all. Uh, Adam spent a lot of time with him. Uh, he also spent a lot of time climbing with, with other, you know, pioneer, uh, pioneering climbers, you know, the Max Smiths of the world, you know, That's these, fascinating. these guys. And you, and you found his first came across him in a scholarly journal. In a so scholarly journal. A I was aware of him. Well. I mean, most people who are interested in the outdoors would be aware of Adam because he's, he looks like the scientist, you know, he has the, the, the white hair, he has the long white yeah, flowing beard. Like that beard. picture of Einstein, you know, the classic. Completely. So he was recognisable because he often appeared on television when I was young growing up watching things and you would oh, see right. him as an expert, you know, being thrown out to talk about trees, to talk about ptarmigan, to talk about hills, general ecology, he was the go-to person. So we were all aware of him. So when I did approach him initially, I was, I was bothering on reverential because I thought, who am I, this nobody... Uh, without I've got this information and happened to have some information. I had some information ran contrary. Yeah, and and it and it ran contrary to the information he presented. So I was nervous about that. But actually, he couldn't have been nicer. That's excellent. That's really cool. Yeah, it's a it's a shame. I'd have loved to have to have met him, to have interviewed him. But obviously, I'll never have that chance. But it's nice to meet people who have known him and have worked with the guy. I, I mean, anyone who's ever worked with him will tell you that he is um, he's specially. He was a unique guy. His knowledge was uh, vast on multiple subjects. He basically devoted his whole life to the study of the of the outdoors and, and specifically the the hills and the hill environment of, of northeast Scotland. And in this department, he had no peers. That's interesting. I might uh, I might look up more about him and potentially do an episode on that uh, on the guy in the future if I can find enough information and uh, potentially other people willing to willing to chat about him because that would be I think very interesting for everyone. Um, Glaciers in Scotland. Obviously, if a snow patch stays year on year and keeps growing, it will eventually become a glacier. I, I gave this a quick look up when I was doing some research the other day. And there's a theory that we had glaciers in Scotland during the Little Ice Age, 1700s. What do you, have you any thoughts on that? Or I think it's highly unlikely there okay. were uh, glaciers in, in the Little Ice Age. 
Um, the I don't think the temperature got low enough really and for, for a sustained period of time. I'm, I'm not a climatologist, nor even am I an academic, so my opinion is just that really of, 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 a, of a layman. However, I would qualify that by saying that when Adam and I were researching the book that we wrote in 2010 called Cool Britannia, which looked at the historical evidence of more snow during the Little Ice Age on the hills of Britain, mm-hmm. uh, we, came a, we came across lots of, of writing. Now, mo- much of it was anecdotal and much of it was written in sort of by-the-way fashion. So, for example, you people like Andrew Carnegie, the famous philanthropist. Oh, wow who came across and he would talk about snow near the Demochter Pass at a certain time of the year that you wouldn't expect it now. That's quite an interesting thing to use as a source. It is. Uh, and Just side mentions in someone's side mentions, totally different story. But the thing, because it's a side mention and it's not the focus of, of a story or a book, it's an incidental, then the chances of it being concocted for are dramatic lower, effect yeah. are, are, are very low. And we found this a lot. So we found it even with people like Robert Burns. Boswell wrote about it as well. Lots of historical writers who were doing their grand tours in Scotland during the 19th century specifically, but as far back as the 18th century as well, would mention snow being visible at this point during their journey. And if you looked at the dates in their journey, you think, really, were you seeing snow on this hill at that time of the year? You would never That's see interesting, that. interesting, yeah. So um, certainly there was more snow around, for sure. But to answer the question, I don't think there was. And the reason, the, the main reason for me is that there's a location in the Cairngorms where uh, there was a paper written relatively recently um, which postulated that Corran Lochan, Corran Lochan in the uh, in the Cairngorms, northeastern Cairngorms, held a glacier. Now, there's no contemporary writings mm-hmm. on this glacier, which would have been highly that's, visible that from That paper, I think I had a quick look at this. Was this the one where they were using a form of dating yes. to do with the quartz, was it not? Uh, so it's kind well, of like radiocarbon dating? There, there were... There have been num- numerous papers, uh, lichen studies and the, the dating of, of, of rock using this method. I'm not 100% sure what this uh, particular paper um, used as, as evidence mm-hmm. for, um, for coming to the, the conclusion that glaciers were there. But my view has always been uh, that had there been a glacier and, in the quarries at that time, it would have been written about. There's a very good example of a, a long-lasting snow patch location on Cairngorm called Kishmerit, which in 1796... And whereabouts is that on Cairngorm? It's just over the back of the... Uh, from Ptarmigan Hut. So if you go over the back of the Ptarmigan Hut, heading in a sort of east northeasterly direction, it's a big bowl. It's the one that Helen Rennie skis on every... Uh, yeah, every, she, she manages um, to like get a turn in yes, every she, month. Is yeah. it every month of the year in Scotland? It is, yeah, yeah. That's quite impressive. So, but that in antiquity, that location was called the Snow House. Uh, ah, right. And what, we're, what we've taken to mean by that, what we take to mean by that is snow was always present there. And in fact, when Sarah Murray Oust went there in 1796 in September, she talked about this location uh, being a place where snow was always to be found. It was called the Snow House. Now, that was at the same time that glaciers were postulated appearing just over the valley. Now, surely should have mentioned. Oh, you, P.S. There's also a glacier around the corner. You would have thought so, but the fact that and there's it would no, have probably been visible on the approach as well. Oh, for on sure. Where she'd yeah. gone in from. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, obviously the ski station wasn't there at the time, but the, they'd have gone in from Glenmore probably. Uh, they would have. They would have gone in from Glenmore, and they would have been able to see it much more readily than the the snow house in inverted commas. So, of course, yeah. For me, uh, that account is, is is pretty convincing, but also the fact that. 
the, the mention of glaciers is notable by its absence in the historical record. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. And, and these places are the, the ones which were more likely to, to harbour glaciers. Also at Garachor Moor, the place in, in Scotland where snow lies the longest. That's upon Breiriach. That's at the... Um, that's right. It's 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 part of uh, one of the the, the quarries of of Breiriach. It's the place in Scotland where, as I say, it snow lies the the, the latest. Even there, uh, the paper recently, which speculated that a glacier was present on account of uh, a protalus rampart, which is a a a, a, a periglacial deposit. Sort of, was, like a moraine. At the it's end like of a, it, it was postulated to be a moraine, but. Um, we don't think it was a marine. We think it was just a, a, a protalus rampart. Uh, so I think the evidence is not conclusive at all for glaciers in the Little Ice Age. You mentioned the, uh, so is it the Sphinx, the patch in yes. Garcori that, how do you pronounce it? I... Oh, it's pronounced locally and, and has mm. always been pronounced locally as Garachor Moor. I won't even try. I won't even try, <laughs> but um, we all know which one you're talking about. Yeah. Um, that's the Sphinx, the, the snow patch there, is it not? There's two patches of snow there which are which are named, well, actually, there are a few which are named, and, and they are named for the rock climb which is above them. Oh, that's quite cool. Yeah, so Sphinx, uh, obviously named after Sphinx Ridge, which is just, which runs up just parallel uh, on the other side. Uh, so it's, it's, it's named after that. That is the patch of snow which historically has lasted longest uh, and has always been last to melt. And that's the one that, uh, so I might, I'll probably get this wrong, but I'll have a go. Was it in 2017 and 2018? Mm -hmm. That's the first time it's recorded as having melted for two consecutive summers. That's right. It's never happened. Uh, It never happened before. Um, The Sphinx patch melted, first of all, in 1933, as did all snow in Scotland that year. Uh, so it melted thirty three, and that was the first time, incidentally, it had melted since the 1700s. Wow. And probably before that. But that's the last... Uh, the, the time that records, good records, reliable records, exist from. So it melted in 1933, but also in 1959 and 1996, 2003 and 2006. So getting more frequent and more frequent. 2002. Yeah, if you look at the, the rate there of seems, disappearance... There seems to be a trend. Well, as I say, I'm not a climatologist. Um, I will let the experts examine uh, what that means. But yeah. all I can do is just you know supply the data and I'll let them interpret it. But it seems to me, yes, that we're getting less in the way of winter snow uh, and the patches are not lasting as long. I, I would say, though, it, it, it's been punctuated by more, if you like, severe winters. Okay. Uh, so we had, the, we had the beast from the east, yeah. which was oh, the winter climbing was so good with that. Mm. That was fantastic. You know, the hills were all white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And two thousand fourteen was actually a very snowy year, and and two thousand fifteen, uh, a huge amount of snow patches survived, um, and that's because a lot of snow fell later on in spring, and it kept on falling. And and in fact. Uh, talking to Blair Fife, who works at the Scottish Avalanche Information Service, he and I estimate that in 2015, the deepest snow of the winter uh, was to be found um, in ben ne- on Ben Nevis, probably in the first week of June. Oh, so wow. It kept on snowing all the way through. Kept May. on kind of accreting, if you will, yeah. till wow, that's uh, quite something. How deep was that out of interest? Well, it's always very hard ballpark, to tell. Ballpark figure, because it's on a slope. And, it's yeah. on a slope, so there's an angle, but if you if you go there in summer, 
Um, you get a scale of, of the depth, which must have been there in, in winter as well. I think on exceptionally snowy winters, like for example 1994, uh, 20 to 25 metres of depth is not cool. an exaggeration. And some of the, I think a lot of uh, news sources, I think it was a couple of years ago, they picked up on some of the photos that you'd taken with you and your friends underneath these uh, these cool ice caves. Mm. And they look like uh, pictures taken from a glacier in Iceland or something, or the beautiful blue light filtering through. There's a, I'm, I'm looking at one on the wall just at the moment now. That's a, where's that one out of interest? Well, that's taken in Ben Nevis. Uh, it was taken by Murdo McLeod, who is a photographer for The Guardian. He came up and accompanied me that day. And... As you, as you talk about, you know, caves. I think it must have been a Guardian article I saw then in that case. It, it, it no doubt was. It was that, that picture up on the wall, which you've described, uh, was the uh, centrefold of the uh, Guardian um, National Edition, which went out a couple of years ago. Murdo McLeod texted me the next day and he said, uh, buy the Guardian, and he said, and go to the middle pages. And that's all he said. He didn't mention anything. So I went up to the shop. Bought the Guardian, opened it up, and they are right, bang. They're, they're they wonderful are in, in, in the middle of the, That's of great. the Guardian. So they do they do fairly good coverage a lot of the time. The Guardian of sort of uh, scientific matters and also mountaineering. So I guess it's kind of the, the, almost at the intersection between those it figures that they would uh, have their finger on the pulse. Murdo is always looking to get out into the hills. He spends his August at the festival. So a good time to get Murdo's at September because he's itchy oh, to get up cool. to get up into the hills. So that was taken in September two thousand and oh was it sixteen. Big apartment was 16. So, yeah, so these amazing tunnels, ice caves, snow tunnels, you know, they've called a variety of different things, but they're formed by the passage in spring and summer of water as it starts to melt underneath existing snowbanks. Is it a sort of a radiative heat as well from the rock? I did wonder about that. It, it, it is at the edge of the rock, so where it comes uh-huh. away from the cliff, you, you have that. But what, what initially forms a tunnel is, is a stream. And it, right. it carves a little channel, no more than a, a sort of a foot across initially. But what that then does, it acts as a wind tunnel. So if you've got a gap... Ah, because I wondered how it kind of crept, you know, a metre or a metre yeah, and a half. Yeah, well, that's how it is. Warmer air. So when, when that water has... Fro- uh, sorry, when it has uh, defrosted in winter and, and starts to melt, it melts this little channel from, bottom, uh, from top to bottom. Uh, as I say, about a foot or so, uh, half a metre at most in, in, in diameter. And what then happens is that allows warmer air to start flowing in from either below or above, oh, and cool. it gradually eats away and eats away, and you get this eventually these massive tunnels. That's dead interesting. I think every every climber and mountaineer who's done anything, who's tried to access a rock climb in spring with a patch of snow at the bottom of it, or tried to access all the routes in the Alps, they'll know what it's like. You've got these big gaps. Mm. And There's a German word for it, and it's Randkluft. Oh, that's that's interesting. I didn't know there was a German. Yeah, there's a German word. There's this, the phenomenon is so little seen in this country that there's no name and uh, uh, there's no native British name for mm-hmm. it. It's Rancluft is the space between the snow bank and the cliff face where the where the snow has melted away from the. That's, rock. A, that's a useful word to know. Rancluft, not to be mistaken with Bergschrund, which which is that's similar. Between, that's between the snow that's on the mountain and the head of the glacier. Isn't Correct. It? Yes. Uh, yeah, I think, and the, it's Rime is what the French call it? Uh, they've, yes, the, the oh, French yes, have got their name for it as well, yeah, but but we have no native British word for it. So that's how little mm. uh, it's been observed. That's quite cool. So the, obviously, I mean, if, if, if you're correct, and the, the last glaciers in Scotland weren't during the Little Ice Age of the 1700s, otherwise they would have been 11,500 years ago. That's right, during the Loman re-advance uh, period uh, many thousands of years ago. So... Uh, 
yeah, no reason to, for me. No reason for a vocabulary to survive that long. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so what, uh, what do you think it would take for the snow patches in Scotland to start forming glaciers? A drop of what kind of temperature or how much additional snowfall? Well, Just a ballpark figure. Manly had, had said, you know, uh, this is a, a guy who wrote extensively about snow um, quite a few years back, but he, he did quite a lot of study on it and he reckoned that a drop of two degrees Celsius... I had heard that figure somewhere before. Yeah. Possibly would, a bit more now, given that it's... Uh, kind of well, completely... yeah, I think uh, that that would probably be enough to sustain it uh, and for the snow to accumulate more and to accrete more and eventually mm-hmm. uh, weight, moving under its own weight, you know, to be classified as a proper glacier. Because, of course, there are things which have been classified as glaciers which don't necessarily sort move. Of nevies. Yeah, so if... Exactly. If you look at... There's, there's a, a patch in Japan uh, and Japan was thought not to have any glaciers but it does have fossil ice so there's a, a hill called Karanosuk What's in Japan fossil ice? Forgive my, forgive my ignorance It's, it's just ice which has been there for many 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 hundreds of, okay, of years But it's not flowing or It's not flowing It's contained in a big bowl so it's, oh, it's right. ability to, to flow out is, is curtailed That's quite cool So it's been there for at least 1700 years because they did some carbon dating on on matter which was resting at the bottom of organic matter which had been trapped so they reckon it's about 1700 years old uh, but that's been reclassified as a glacier and some people are thinking well I'm not sure why that's classified because it's not really moving yeah that's an interesting one so um, for it to happen in this country I think well it's not going to happen in my lifetime mm. and I suspect nor is it going to happen in the lifetime of anyone alive it's now unless of course there's a a catastrophic Unless, change in the climate. Yeah, I mean, with, with, with potentially climate change and stuff, we don't really know. You know no. It's uncharted territory. No. And some of it will be to do with the amount of precipitation that falls in winter. You know, yeah. It's not purely down to, to temperatures because absolute temperatures don't melt snow all the time. 1976 is a classic example. It was the hottest summer on record and the snow survived. 2014 was a really warm year. Quite a few patches of snow survived. So there is no absolute correlation between summer temperature and patches surviving. It's, yeah. it's a lot of it's to do with the precipitation that falls on winter and the temperatures of the of, of the spring. Uh, so so for each day in the spring that snow is not melting, it stands a better chance of surviving to the next uh, next winter. So absolute summer temperature is only part of the mix, though by no means the most important. Cool. What about, um, histor- I've heard of historical accounts, various clans were granted land if they could provide snowballs or mm. samples of snow from their land uh, on kind of Midsummer's Day and things like that. Have you any, any familiarity with that? Yeah, it happened quite a few of them, actually. So uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Chisholms uh, were um, uh, at, uh, oh, let me just get this right. I think the, uh, there was, there was a, a family, I'm trying to remember the name, it may have been Chisholms, uh, ben Wivis, who's uh, McLeod? No, not McLeod, it's Ben Wivis. I'm presuming you can chop this out. Because okay. Ben, um, no, I don't tend to bother. I tend okay. to even, uh, okay. any mistake. I think it's funny. Uh, no, I know, I know Ben Wivis reasonably well. That big collie that you can see from Dingwall. Yeah. So there's, if we look at other ones, so the um, the Farquharsons of Invercold, uh, up near, well, just at the back of Braemar, there's a patch of snow at the back of them on Benabird. Otherwise, people call it Benavurd or Benavurs, mm-hmm. but properly it's Benavurd. Uh, and on top of it, there's a, a named snow patch called the Laird's Tablecloth. Oh, cool. And that was said to be always uh, there all year round because um, 
the the laird, uh, Farquharson of called spoke to Adam Watson about 15, 20 years ago, and he said that um, the the table was always set. You know, the tablecloth oh, was, cool. was, was always set at the top of Inneburn, and the snow should ever vanish, then the Farquharsons would be in danger of losing their, their, their tenure of land on that if all the snow went. But that was, you know, relatively common. There, there's a similar story for the Cowerns uh, with Ben Nevis uh, as well. Uh, um, there's a, uh, Ben Kruken uh, as well above Loch Awe had similar stories with local families. That's cool. It's a very common uh, idea. It happened quite a lot, but it, what that points to is evidence. And again, it's, it's, you can call it hard evidence. It's, not, it's nothing more than anecdotal, but... The fact that it occurred in so many different hills across the the Highlands suggests that snow lasted longer yeah. and people were able to get it for longer. The fact that these families that have been you know, there for quite some time, they were linking themselves or they were being linked to what was, I guess, a fairly constant feature to their, to their mind. It was always there. Uh, it could be relied upon. And, and one winter in Fort William, when the... Uh, when, when the cold weather failed, there wasn't the frost there used to be, the salmon packing that they did there was under threat so they went up into the high quarries of Ben Nevis with horse and baskets no way. and got loads of snow from the uh, uh, from, from the gullies and brought it down wow, uh, I, didn't know that, I didn't know that had been done commercially in Scotland I knew I knew of it happening in Majorca mm. and they had like ice houses there and they would pack snow yeah, down and things yeah. like that but I didn't know that had ever been useful uh, for industry in Scotland well I'm not sure of the scale of it but it was certainly done there's, there's record of it being done and, and appears in Ken Crockett's book as well on Ben Nevis so patches of snow were they were more reliable, I think. It's definitely more reliable. They were larger and yeah. they could be relied on to last for longer. Funny but you mentioned Ken Crockett. He's another person I would like to interview because obviously he's done a huge amount as a mountaineer. He lives well. not far from here, Ken. I was aware of that because there's a crag near here that he largely developed. Right. Kind of right behind his house, apparently. Well, he, lived, he, he lives in Clax. He lives in Clackmanisher, which is about a 15, 20-minute drive from here. So he has got a very good playground behind him because the, the Ochels are, there's a lot of yeah really good climbing on the north face of the Ochels. I might see if I can uh, get hold of him. He'd be an interesting one for sure. Definitely. Um, Flora, what kind of interesting stuff do you find where snow patches are? Um, some of the mosses are, are very interesting. I, and I say that as someone who's not, I'm not massively interested in mosses. Uh, however, what you find at these places, because... The growing season is so short, and what I mean by that is uh, they're underneath this. They're snow. underneath snow. I mean, they've got maybe a month or a maximum of. A couple yeah, of so it depends. Obviously, some seasons are longer than others, so it melts. Sometimes it melts a bit sooner, and you, you see a bit more. But in the very longest-lasting locations, such as the Sphinx that we talked about, nothing grows. Literally, not even lichen. Can oh, get so out. it's just uh, rock. It's just, just rock. It's, vir- it's, it's virgin pink granite. Which is oh, which is surrounds it because the ste- it's the season is so short that as I say nothing can get a toehold. Now as you start to go out from the uh, from the patch of snow that's sphinx, for I example, guess you get you start kind of a, a linear, a linearly longer growing season. Well, you do, yeah, that's quite uh, cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so then you get different things uh, growing, but the predominant species up there is like mosses, liverworts, you know, really primitive life. Yeah. Hugely primitive life. Really basic stuff. Really basic stuff. And it's... It, but these things have sometimes got an amazing... It's green uh, and orange and brown. There's a there's a, 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 a really nice uh, uh, strain of... It's called Iceland moss, Polaya Wallenbergi, which is this 
amazing green, fluorescent green colour, which when you get up really close to it and run your hand across it, it's like a sponge. It's just this fantastic uh I think a lot tactile. of people don't realise the colours that you get in the hills and the really No, but you have to go close to it. Some of these some of these things, these amazing mosses you don't find them at the side of footpaths. You know, you no, have to go in the dripping quarries. Once they're, they're gone. Exactly. If you I found uh, if you ever if you ever really fancy an awful day out, there's uh Clackey Gully. Oh right. I would recommend it to my worst enemy. It's yeah, atrocious. Yeah, yeah. However, you see lots of interesting mosses, mm, mm. things with huge leaves and things I've never seen before. It's a place, yeah, exactly. It's a place where wildlife can't get to to eat it. Yeah, you know, so yeah. It, it tends to survive. In they tend places. to find the uh, kind of antlers and the skulls of the ones mm. that tried. Yeah, exactly. Um, what about climbing things, climbing gear that you've found? Lots. Uh, one it's of, amazing how much random stuff you find. Well, in you guns, you isn't it? you can do it, particularly on the really popular climbs. So. Ben Nevis is always a great place to go. On my most recent visit, I found, uh, I think, probably four or five-month-year-old five ice axe, which was in very good condition, actually, oh, and, and retails for 150 quid in the Oh, yeah, get that one, Ben. <laughs> so I'm going to hold on to it because I was needing to get a new ice axe anyway. So yeah, this will, handy. This will save me, save me the bother. But all sorts of things. Al Todd, who is a climbing friend of mine who likes to do winter climbs, he has found, well, I have found as well, but I've given them to him because I don't do it. But he's found lots of um, ice screws, you know, black diamond uh, oh, ice screws, and still in great condition. Like 40 quid's worth every single time. Every single time. So uh, carabiners, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to trust some of the stuff that you find because it's a bit worse for wear, but some yeah. of it is, is, is fine. The ice axe is absolutely fine, you know. But hats, caps... Uh, I, I, I found a crack in Arcteryx uh, cap in the quarry last year which I put through the washing machine and wear and it's, it's great, I still wear it. So you do get some quite nice booty which is just as well because everything to do with patches of snow and then their investigation comes out of my pocket, I don't get paid for it. So it's all done on an amateur basis uh, in the name that of should be, That should be funded. <laughs> well, it, it, there's two schools of thought. Yet one school of thought is yes, it should be fun because it's incredibly interesting mm -hmm. and valuable. The other school of thought is that because when we write the paper every year for the Royal Meteorological Society, um, we are free of political interference ah, okay, and pressure. You're, you're your own guys. You so can... we can publish. We we are not beholden to anyone to spin a certain line. Oh, that's so we... that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you you said uh, the data that you collect? Who do you give that to, or what happens with that data? Does that get plugged into models and things? Uh, it, it, it can do by others. I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, so I am happy for others to use the data that we collect to, to do models. Some people have done modelling of it. Uh, what I do is I condense all the visits that happen over the course of a year, uh, and I condense it into 2,500 words or thereabouts, and I draft a paper. Uh, for the, and as I say, it goes to the Royal Meteorological Society. What's, what is your background, sort of educationally and uh, and work wise? I left school at sixteen. Uh, I hated school. I'm not at all uh, academic. Uh, I was. I've become more academic because I've had to become more academic. But I, I, for writing things, I had never indulged in really anything like that. So I left school at sixteen and became an apprentice electrician. Um, so. From an educational perspective, that's excellent. So, and limited. you've still been able to contribute, obviously, a fair amount to sort of citizen science and you know, fairly fairly advanced stuff. The the one which has just appeared was my twentieth paper. So that's, um, that's brilliant, isn't it? To live in a society where if you're really interested in something and you put the effort in, you can contribute in that way. 
Adam always said, and he was a quadruple doctorate, you know, he was quadruple the, doctorate, yeah, quadruple doctorate wow. the complete opposite of, of me. He always said that the most important attribute that someone uh, can possess is enthusiasm. And if you have enthusiasm, what you do is... The divine quality. Well, it is. Without that, you're, you're not going to get very far, are you? We, we would never do anything. I would never do anything like that if we didn't have enthusiasm. But enthusiasm is infectious. And when you enthuse others, uh, it, you know, it, it is infectious and you, they eventually become interested themselves. You, know, so you get that bit of a feedback loop going, don't you? You do. And so Adam was right. Enthusiasm is the most important thing. Of course, you have to have patience, diligence... Uh, a bit of knowledge you have to have fitness you have to have a but lot of things but that can all come that can all come from it all, enthusiasm I, I feel all these things stem from enthusiasm if you have enthusiasm the rest will follow great and it's great to meet someone who's so enthusiastic about something that's uh, very dear to the, the hearts of lots of mountaineers climbers and uh, people who love the Scottish hills I think we'll, uh, we'll wrap up there thank you very much for coming on the show it's been uh, very very interesting indeed thanks very much <laughs>